Alright, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family in the unity that you've provided from eternity past, Father, especially for this blessed congregation here at North Christian Church. Thank you for bringing to us folks from outside the church to fellowship with us here as well this morning. Father, we're just so very grateful for everything that you've done in our lives. Uh, sanctification sometimes is just frankly overwhelming. Such a testimony to your grace, your mercy, and of course your love, Father. May we never become familiar with these things. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this morning but earnestly desire to be here. We just want them to know that we're with them in spirit, that our hearts go out to them, and if they need healing, Father, we pray to you for such things. Father, we pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that before it's too late, they might be evangelized and we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, part 71. For whatever reason, the Spirit wanted me to read another letter to you this morning. Uh, last week, I uh, read Kathy's note to me. And again, uh, the Spirit's had a lot to say on the topic of encouragement. And I only share these things, not, to, not so you think that I'm some fabulous guy or, you know, everyone in this world thinks so highly of me. I'm not delusional. <laughs> uh, but it's a good example of what encouragement looks like. And uh, it's a good source of gratitude for all of you, for other people in the congregation who do actually take the time, not just to encourage me, but to encourage others. So I just want to read this with you uh, for your own encouragement. Good morning, Pastor. This was written, I believe, uh, this past Monday. Uh, since yesterday, <clears throat> I have felt inspired to write you. Many times in the past, I felt like I should reach out to you, but I don't know. I guess I just keep putting it off, and for that, I humbly apologize. I feel for you as a pastor, a shepherd, and a family member, and I hate to see your heart ache. You have guided my spiritual walk along with the Spirit, of course, and have inspired me in so many ways. Yes, the lessons are hard at times, and you push us to reach a better understanding of the Scriptures. I know you do it out of love for us, and your desire for us is to grow as Christians. And for that, I am so very thankful. I love my church and my church family, the lessons, the blogs, and the Bible studies, and I couldn't imagine for one minute being anywhere else but here. So, Pastor, thank you so very, very much for your hard work, diligence, and devotion to His Word and to us, your congregation. I know I don't say it enough, but it doesn't go unnoticed. 
thank you in his love and parent. Yeesh. It was funny because I didn't think about it until I was typing up uh, excuse me, these notes that both of my deacons' wives, uh, they're the ones that have encouraged me over the past couple of weeks, um, that they're my deacons' wives, and they're, uh, that position uh, means something, that we know from Holy Scripture that um, I can't even promote an individual to the office of deacon if I have questions about the wife. So am I surprised? Not at all. So I want to allow Holy Scripture to substantiate why I'm not surprised. Go to 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. First Timothy 3.8. See what you almost did, Ann? I hope you're happy. <laughs> First Timothy 3.8 reads, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And then he talks about the women, certainly deacons' wives are in view here. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful, faithful in all things. So may we conclude in our own humble church here at North Christian Church that the two ladies who have been publicly pointed out have been faithful in their encouragement. Yeah. For this they have become wonderful examples for the rest of you. And you should be grateful on multiple levels. One, they are great examples of what I've been teaching on encouragement itself. And then number two, they also help your pastor, which in turn is to your benefit. And those are things to think about for all of you. Um, and as I mentioned last week, this isn't just about encouraging your pastor, but more generally, each other. That we're supposed to be encouraging each other. As Paul wrote about this, I'll give you the New Living version up here on the board, Romans 1.12. Both of us need help. I can help make your faith strong and you can do the same for me. We need each other. Amen? Yeah. We need each other. Paul wrote this. You know, the writer of the majority of the New Testament. The one who had a maturity that many of us may never reach. And he said, I need you in my life. I need your encouragement. I need to understand that you're growing in the grace and knowledge of God. And I want you to know that about me as well, that I haven't arrived yet. And that I need you. Because this road that we walk is just wrought with speed bumps and potholes and gotchas and you 
fill in the blank, just so many ways that we can be discouraged. And we just need encouragement. So just remember that. And remember the examples that I've given you the last couple of Sundays now. Again, this is just some additional encouragement from the Holy Spirit on fine examples that we've had set before us. And just as a balanced statement, neither I nor anyone else here are supposing that only those mentioned publicly are out there encouraging others. I know that encouragement happens all the time in this congregation. It's one of the things I love about this congregation. Remember, it's God that sees your heart. It's God that sees your heart. Don't use that as an excuse, of course, never taking the time to encourage others, but I hope you know what I mean. This past week, the Spirit reminded us of something sin certainly aims to deceive us regarding important aspects of our spiritual walks, like encouragement. Here's the point. This came out on Thursday evening up on the board. Do not be deceived. It's a privilege to have the time, the energy, and the opportunity to encourage another human being. It's a privilege. It's not a chore. It's not a task. Does it require effort? You bet. But it's a privilege to have this time, even today, to encourage each other. And we'll read John 15. Uh, it should be 10 to 13. It should be colon 10 to 13. Go to John 15, 10. John 15, 10. It's a privilege, and that's how we should think about it. John 15, 10. John 15.10 reads, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life, for his friends. Again, this is a, a privilege up here on the board. Furthermore, never think anything less of encouragement than what it truly is a privilege. Having the time and the space and the energy and the place to encourage another individual is a privilege. And that's how we ought to think about it. It's not a chore. It's not something you, you know, check off on your daily checklist to satisfy the Lord God. Because God sees the heart. He doesn't want you just doing like we did as children. Yes, Mom, I'll apologize. Yes, Mom, I'll tell my sister she's whatever. Or my bro you know, God's not interested in that. God sees the heart. And He wants you to understand through the study of the Word of God that it's a privilege to encourage each other. So never think anything less of encouragement than what it truly is, a privilege. And the same goes for any form of living for others. 
the fact that you're here, alive, breathing, the fact that you have one more day or even one more breath to take that is encouraging. For as long as you sit there, I'm telling you right now, from my perspective, for whatever it's worth to you, for as long as you sit there in front of me, you're encouraging me. Except DJ. I'm just kidding. You always encourage me. As long as you're breathing, as long as you're coming to class, as long as you're willing to stand by the food back there and chat up Jesus Christ, I can hear it in my office and it's encouraging. Never underestimate your impact in this world. As we learned this past week, whenever we find ourselves lacking in the area of encouragement, we need to step back. And not just one step, not just, oh, I don't encourage people enough, but two or more. Why? This is what is required to address the fundamental question, how did I end up like this? How, how am I the person who never encourages other people? Why am I not motivated? I can't force it. It's not fake it till you make it. I can't force it because God sees my heart and God doesn't like hypocrites. So how did I end up here? Because I really do want increased faith. I really do want increased desire and energy to make a difference in my brothers and sisters in Christ's lives. So how did this happen? So that's not a one-step-back scenario. It's two or more. Paul teaches us that humility is the key to maintaining the right perspective and avoiding falling into any traps that bear ugly fruit. You might say, well, what's ugly fruit? Well, ugly fruit is something like personal misery. Ugly fruit. How did I end up here? Why am I so miserable that I can't get off my duff and encourage even one person? For some of you, it might be your father today because it is Father's Day and it's a good time to do it. But how about every day? Shouldn't in, in some way Father's Day be every day? Shouldn't you be grateful for your fathers every day? How about your Father in Heaven? How about the Lord Jesus Christ? How about He's not just to be uh, someone to be grateful for on Sundays or when you're in ch a church like this one? Why am I so miserable that I don't see these things? How often does a miserable person encourage others? That's a fair question. How often does a miserable person encourage others? Hardly ever because they are in a state of self-absorption all the time. I get it. Who here hasn't been so miserable they don't want to even talk to another human being? Never mind encourage them. Miserable people make terrible encouragers. But you have to step back then, once, twice, thrice. Why am I miserable? If I've been saved by the grace of God from the pit of hell, what reason do I have? What justification do I have to be miserable really any day? I mean, if Jesus Christ could have a joy set before him on his way to his own death on a cross, what's my problem? 
Well, obviously, I must be self-absorbed. This is why I'm miserable. I've lost my focus. So that's a good question that we all need to ask ourselves. Often when we look in the mirror, how does a miserable person encourage others? Or how often do they encourage others? And the answer is hardly ever because they're in a state of self-absorption. Too focused on self, which is a base component of misery. The remedy, how do you escape misery up here on the board? It's impossible to remain miserable if we focused on Christ. Impossible. I challenge you. I challenge you. Focus on Christ and see if you can remain miserable. It can't happen. It's impossible. Therefore, to bring this full circle, if we wonder how it is that we arrived at some unfavorable estate in our lives, then we have our answer. It's the corollary to the point on the board. Again, it's impossible to remain miserable if we focus on Christ. I'll give you this as well up here on the board. When our focus and affections are diverted from Christ, misery seeps in and ruins our joy. In this new estate, we don't feel like doing anything but wallowing in self-pity and misery or self-misery. Encouraging others is no longer top of mind. It might be the last thing you're thinking of. And that's a shame, given that our Lord and Savior went to the cross so that we might do that for one another. So when our focus and affections are diverted from Christ, misery seeps in and ruins our joy. In this new estate, we don't feel like doing anything but wallowing in self-pity and self-induced misery. Therefore, encouraging others is no longer top of mind. This is why Paul wrote the things he wrote about remaining humble and concentrating on remaining focused on Christ. Go to Philippians 3.13. This is why Paul wrote the way he wrote. Philippians 3.13. I doubt very much that any of us have been persecuted the way he's been per- he was persecuted. And yet he found it within himself to encourage us the way he has in Holy Scripture. Think about that. He wrote books for us. We have a hard time picking up our smartphones while we're sitting on our recliners and texting someone, hope you're having a nice day in Christ. I'm going to go on a limb and say it's slightly shorter than a New Testament book. Anybody try to kill you today? Been stoned almost to death, thrown out, left for dead in an ocean. Yeah. Philippians 3.13, that guy wrote this. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God In Christ Jesus, I press on. Can't change yesterday, so don't be all condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. 
We can learn from our mistakes, of course. That's a very good thing. But it's onward and upward. If you had an all-time low, then you know what? There's only one place to go. Hallelujah, right? By the grace of God, He hasn't taken you out yet. <laughs> By the grace and mercy of God, you're able to move on. And maybe, just maybe, have the incredible privilege of taking a few extra breaths this day and encouraging another human being. From one estate to something fantastic and supernatural. Only God can do that. So it says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So it begs the question, what's, what's the problem with us? This grotesque masquerade of a world that we live in is filled with distractions. That's what I would argue. I would argue that America has a special place even in this world because we have so many distractions that it's grotesque. All of them, by the way, are meant to divert our eyes from the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We just read it. Anything that diverts your eyes is no good, is unholy. And Satan, the god of this world, has designed all those things to distract you so that you're miserable, so that you do not fulfill the commands of our Lord and Savior, such as gather together and encourage each other for as long as it's called today, not forsaking such things. So all these things, these distractions, they're meant to divert our eyes from the prize. The Spirit gave us some pretty good food for thought on Thursday regarding one simple channel, yes, the pun is intended, that is designed by the kingdom of darkness to rob you of your joy. And I'm speaking of the news, of course. Today's news programs are essentially designed to rob you of your rest. To rob you of your rest. It's hard to rest when the, quote, boogeyman is out terrorizing countries, neighborhoods, schools, families, etc., etc. It's hard to rest when that's all the news props up. The boogeyman. If it's not this today, it's that tomorrow. If it's not that tomorrow, it's the other thing the next day. I can't remember the last time I watched the nightly news and wasn't somehow disturbed or graded. So for me, choosing to avoid such programs altogether is the best solution. I'm more interested in being an able-bodied soldier for Christ, not one that has to spend all of his time in the mash tent being tended to because he's crippled by fear-inducing injuries. So, of first priority always should be to protect our peace up here on the board. What's more important than protecting your peace? Tell me. What's more important than protecting your peace? And if something in its savagery 
is robbing you of that peace, maybe, just maybe, you should put it aside. If it's not conducive to your relationship, a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ and maybe others in the face, faith, maybe you should put that thing aside. Maybe you should rethink your routine. Many of us are in routine. Some of you are like, hey, I eat my supper in front of the nightly news. Well, this is between you and the Lord. I'm just telling you what it does for me. What's more important than protecting your peace? Here's the Spirit's perspective on the scare tactics from the kingdom of darkness up here on the board. How about trust in God? Read Psalm 28 when you get a chance. Psalm 56 when you get a chance. Jeremiah 17, 7, I'll give you that up here on the board. How about trust in God? Jeremiah 17, 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Maybe instead of watching, you know, is Ted Koppel still alive? Does he still do the news? He doesn't, right? If he goes to the show, I don't even know who the mainstream people are anymore. Instead of watching that person, maybe you open your Bible. Seriously. Maybe you shut the TV off and you have a conversation with your spouse about God. About Jesus Christ has everything under control. Just saying. Go to Psalm 56, verse 3. Which one bears more fruit is the, is the fair question on the table. And I, as my disclaimer is the one I gave you on Thursday. I'm not saying never stay up to current events. That would be stupid. I'm just saying be careful what you let into your soul. And don't let habit be the force of why those things end up there. And if you only have so much time and so much energy to devote to reading something, put down the newspaper and pick up the Bible. Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Most of the time in the news, there's some boogeyman running around shooting up a school or raping innocent women and, and, and children even. Um, and it's just all to scare us. I'm not saying we don't understand these things exist. You know what I'm saying. What can mere man do to me? But if I've foregone reading my Bible, if I've foregone growing up in the grace and knowledge of God for all these other things, when the hits the fan... What do I have to stand on? I have no faith to speak of. I crumble like a house of cards. Which investment strategy has a better return? You tell me. What can mere man do to me? If I'm going to fear anyone in this world, it certainly isn't going to be man. The Bible says to fear God. So that's a good place to start. If I'm going to allow my peace to be rattled, then it ought to be by the mighty hand of God, you know, when I'm out of line. If I'm going to suffer loss in any way in this life, may it be at the divine ordination of the Holy One. 
for he is the one who controls history. Up here on the board in the Amplified Hebrews 1.3. Jesus Christ is upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe, by his powerful word, carrying the universe along to its predetermined goal. Any questions? Who controls history? Not the guy in the television set, not the boogeyman. Jesus Christ, God does. Jesus Christ is upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe by his powerful word, carrying the universe along to its predetermined goal. We must rest in this one simple truth. Do not let sin deceive you into believing otherwise. That is what, I'm just picking on the news because it's the one that the Spirit wants me to pick on. That is what the news is generally designed to do. To get you to doubt, to believe in the boogeyman. You know what? Here's newsflash for you. If God doesn't want you dead, guess what's not going to happen? You're not going to die. I just had that conversation with Art Morton. If God doesn't want you dead, you're not going to die. So who are you afraid of? The boogeyman? If God wants you dead, you know what's going to happen? <laughs> you're dead. <laughs> so there you go. God's got everything under control. Stop worrying about the boogeyman. Stop worrying about some nameless, faceless, amorphous blob from across the other side of the world is going to come and take your, your lunch tomorrow or blow up your home. Stop worrying about those kinds of things. Stop allowing Satan in the kingdom of darkness to distract you. Turn off the TV and open your Bible. That's a really good place to start. Do not let sin deceive you into believing that you can't have this rest. Don't let your own sin nature concoct reasons why you ought to be doubting God's divine providence in your life. Once we begin down that unholy road, we leave our joy and our peace behind. Our goal, this prize that Paul wrote of in Philippians 3.14, is a pure relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The more we know Him, the more we love Him. The more we know Him, the more we love Him. The more we fully, if you would, experientially abide in that sphere of love that the Spirit's been bringing up over the last few months. The privilege of being in there the privilege of serving outward as a result of that thing being a reality in your life. For example, encouraging others, but in general, living for others. Jesus Christ said it's more blessed to do that than it is to receive from the world, certainly. More blessed to give. The more we know Him, the more we love Him. So the emphasis has been on gaining said knowledge of Him in accordance with His baseline will. 1 Timothy 2.4, all are saved and come to the knowledge of Him. So in lay terms, what's the Spirit saying again this morning? Read your Bibles. 
read your Bibles. It cannot be a last-ditch effort at the end of each day. It has to be the first thing. Jesus Christ wants, after all, your first fruits, right? He wants the very best that you've got to give. And that starts at the beginning of your day, when you have all your energy. That's when you might think about reading your Bible. And maybe after you eat a nice dinner, and you do turn the TV off, and you read the Bible, maybe together with family members, or at least talk about what's been coming from the pulpit or talk about the latest blog, or talk about what you've been learning in Bible studies, or talk about what you've been learning on your own in your Bible. But nonetheless, it's about the Word of God, and it's about um, encapsulating your life, uh, putting the Word as the centerpiece, and everything you do sort of dances around it, never loses sight of it, is always tethered to it. Regardless of what thing you happen to be doing at 6 in the morning or 6 at night or whatever. Read your Bibles. To read your Bible is to invest in the greatest relationship you'll ever have. The world lies to you about what true love is. It sets you up for failure, actually by setting you off on a course where the end goal is to find someone or something else to fulfill your fleshly desires and lusts and even your preconceptions. I mean, let's face it. Who has the audacity here to raise your hand and say that you knew everything about godly love before you were saved? The very best we can hope for as unsaved people, is some form of selfish love. Certainly not godly love. And so the world continues to lie about a person's ability to find someone or something other than God to fulfill our deepest desires and even our preconceptions. That's a selfish approach to any relationship. Christ himself showed us how to form healthy relationships. Christ himself has shown us how to form healthy relationships. Listen, he showed us that to love is to give. Did he not show us that? That's one of the great things that he showed us, to love is to give. I've reworded that over the years. Love can't help but express itself. You think of it the way you need to think about it, but think about Christ's example. He certainly did show us that to love is to give. Therefore, to forge a new relationship is to extend yourself to the benefit of another human being. A perfect example is to encourage someone. When's the last time you encouraged someone and your relationship with that person didn't get tighter. That that person didn't appreciate you more, didn't love you more for taking the time for them personally. 
So Jesus showed us these things. Relationships require something. So while the world seeks to receive, Christ sought to give. While the world seeks to receive, and that's what it teaches its own, Christ sought to give. If we are to ever enjoy the peace and joy that he offers his own, then we must follow his lead. Because in that sphere of love is also his peace and his joy. He says, enter into my rest. Come with me. What did he tell his disciples? Follow me. I want to give you my joy. I want to give you my peace. But you've got to come with me. You've got to stop being deceived by sin in the world that someone or something else has a better plan for you than I do. We have to follow his lead. And when we do, we enjoy his peace and his joy in that sphere. This is such an important fact that Jesus labored his whole life in order to show us his love. Such an important fact. He labored his whole life in order to show us his love. Therefore, we may also conclude that godly relationships require real effort. He labored his whole life. He went against every popular notion. He went against the grain, so much so they killed him. And we might say, as the capstone of that event on a cross, that love hung on a cross that day. So Jesus labored his whole life. And you know what? He even grew in knowledge. He grew in wisdom. Holy Scripture tells us this, which means, you know what? He was interested in the Word of God. He spent time in the Word of God. And he was perfect. So what can we conclude? If he's our example, if he's our prototype, the perfect one, what can we conclude about how to build relationships? What do godly relationships require? Effort. If Jesus saw fit to labor his entire life to show us, to prove to us, ending in the cross, that he loves us, what shall we say about ourselves? Giving requires real investment up here on the board. Relationships require effort. We seek to give rather than to receive. Christ is our pristine example. We seek to give rather than to receive. And this is a, the converse up here on the board from Thursday's message. Selfish lovers, on the flip side, are terrible in relationships because if they even give at all to another person, it is always tainted with a desire for personal gain. That's the flip side. Let's read about Jesus' ultimate encouragement to his disciples 
and we'll piggyback off where we left off at the start of service. Go to John 15, 11. John 15, verse 11. This world is filled with strategy beyond strategy on how to receive more. In America, it tends to be, everything tends to be related to financial success and power and stuff like that. But the general case is that it's about receiving because that's what the kingdom of darkness teaches its own. That it's all about what can you receive unto yourself. And the lie is that whoever's giving to you loves you. But that's the great lie. You're in the wrong sphere. You're not in the sphere of God at that point because all you're interested in is receiving and receiving more and more and more. And God, the world loves you. And God, my boss, loves me. And God, you fill in the blank, these people love me. Well, God has nothing to do with that stuff. God's saying that's all garbage. It's wood, hay, and straw. Jesus said it's more blessed to give. You want to abide my love? You want my peace and my joy? You want to exit strategy from that misery that you've been living in for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of your life? Listen to me. Listen to me. Live for others. To love is to give. How in the world did Jesus Christ go to the cross with a joy set before him? How in the world does he ask us each to pick up our crosses and carry him? Or else we can't even follow him. How are those mandates before us? And yet, half of us live in this worldly, grotesque abomination called life where our end goal is just to keep on receiving and receiving and receiving. And that's our litmus test for how much we're loved. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. Do you see? I just want my joy to be in you and that your joy may be made full. It's not going to happen if you persist in the world's ways. This is my commandment. He's not asking. He's not saying, hey, here's a swell suggestion on a Sunday morning. He said, this is my commandment. He is your Lord and Savior, not just your Savior. He is Lord. He says, this is my commandment. Make no bones about it. What does he say? That you love one another, just as I have loved you. What did he just say in the previous verse? I want my joy in you. You ready? You want it? Here's what I'm telling you to do. Love one another, just as I have loved you. Take my example upon yourself. Yes, it's a yoke, but you're, you're yoked with me. You're saddled in this thing with me. It's work. It's real work. You're yoked up. You will work. But compared to the misery and the ridiculousness that you face in this world, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. And this is amazing. I almost feel like crying again. Jeez, I don't know what's going on. 
You are my friends. I can't even believe that. Can you fathom that? I'm a wretched ass. Surprise. Sunday morning. So are you. What are you getting all puffed up about? <laughs> and Jesus Christ says, you're my friends? Are you serious with this right now? Are you serious with this? You're my friend. You're calling me friend. Have you seen the things I've done to you just this past week? Have, I, have you seen how I've dishonored you just today in thought only? You are my friends if you do what I command you. <clears throat> no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you, because that's how it works. I want you to know the ways of my Father, because to know Him is to love Him. Up here on the board, I have called you friends. Friends are those we share confidential things with, our hopes, our dreams, our innermost intents, etc. Jesus intimates such things with His sheep, but only those who come to truly know Him will ever benefit. Do you want peace and joy in your life? Here it is. Where do we find these life-binding intimations? The Bible, of course. Hence the Spirit's guidance on Thursday. And we have to buckle down a little bit, so listen up, please. We must read the Bible with intent to learn. We must read the Bible with intent to learn. I had a real bad habit when I was younger, and I know some of you have the same habit you're probably still trying to shed. You go into the Bible with preconceptions. You go into the Bible thinking you already know who and what God is, thinking you already understand everything that He wants for your life, and then you just superimpose your will, and you read what you want to read into Scripture. And that's just about the most dangerous thing you can possibly do. We have to have the faith of a child to approach this good book. You have to go into that, into Holy Scripture every single time with the utmost humility, knowing before you even get there that you don't know everything. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of things you don't know. And if history has anything to say about it, you know you know that you had things wrong before, and now you've got them right, which means that there's probably more of that in your own soul that needs to be ferreted out, that needs to be swept out, cleaned out. You must read the Bible with intent to learn. Up here on the board. So if the Spirit's going to keep harping on read your Bible, let's think of it this way. You're better off reading one chapter in the Word and meditating on it through prayer and fellowship with the Holy Spirit than reading a whole book and then immediately heading back to your worshipless lifestyle. You say, what's worshipless? Read Romans 12.1.
all of you. He wants all of you. That's your worship. Not just you on Sunday morning in your Sunday best. Or during the week or whenever you come to class or whatever like that. He wants all of you. Every aspect of your life. Oh, and that, by the way, includes work. So if you work at an ungodly place, then you need to bring Christ in there. And you need to stand up for him and stop being a coward. You're better off reading with good intent. Even, I don't even, three verses? Meditate on one. Meditate on half a verse. If you're humble, that's better than reading the whole Bible without intent, with preconceptions, just trying to prove your own theories about who and what God is, you know, to satisfy your own worldly lusts, of course. We're really good lawyers, aren't we? That's why, you know, Jesus called Peter, get, said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because he was lawyering. He was using his own mind to reason away something that God wanted to happen. We do that all the time, even when we read our own Bibles. Something, something piques our attention, says, hey, this thing you've been doing in your life, these thoughts you've been having, and then the fruit of them, they're no good. And we read right over them. And we look for the next verse that supports the thing we want to hold, the thing we're white-knuckling, the fleshly lust in our souls. That's not reading with intent. That's reading with self-purpose. Oh, and by the way, keep reading your Bible. This is a command. Here's where we ended last time. Again, to know the Word is to know the heart of God. To know God this way is to find peace. To find peace is to find rest. All of this is predicated on one simple recurring theme in our studies. Obedience. Obedience. Obedience to the Lord ultimately promises rest. If He says, read your Bibles, then obey then read your Bibles. Don't take any pastor's word on Holy Scripture. We are bus drivers. I almost said glorified bus drivers, but I'm not even convinced of that. That's all we are. We're just bus drivers. Don't ever let anybody lie to you how special we are. We're just as wretched and in many ways more wretched than all of you put together. Some of you are like, oh! Most of you are like, yeah, I get it. Obey. That's what matters. If he says read your Bibles, then read your Bibles. Why? Up here on the board. Holy Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. You know what that is? A command. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Ah. Self-induced misery, it gets heavy after a while, does it not? It wears you down to the point where you're depressed. That's what it means, right? Depressed. Pressed down. That's what depression means. It means to be pressed down. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Hebrews 4.11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Diligent. Doing what you're doing right now. Reading your Bibles. Reading every form of grace that He gives you. Be diligent, not passive. Not passive, active. Be diligent to enter that rest. I, would be, I don't have the Greek in front of me, but I would be willing to bet it's uh, active voice, present tense, which means you do it all the time. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. When we understand this basic truth, we do enter into His rest. And when we enter into His rest, we enter into His peace. And as I've been saying from the pulpit now, peace really is the capstone of sanctification. You might argue joy is right in there, love obviously is in there, but you get the point. Finding that place of peace, look around. Are your neighbors at peace? Hardly. The only, ba- the only downside of summer for me is I have to listen to my neighbors because they move all the fighting from inside to outside. And it's, it's horrible. There's no peace. There's no peace in this world. So if you start finding peace, if you start obeying, reading your Bible, staying up with the lessons, staying up with the blogs, taking in all the grace, and all of a sudden, peace starts supplanting Years of misery and scar tissue and all that ugliness that you dragged with you into the faith, then you know you're being sanctified and you know that God's not a liar, that He promises to sanctify us. Peace is the capstone of sanctification. A week ago, we perused a bit of Holy Scripture on this topic. Here's the highlight reel. You can sit back and just read these with me. Psalm 4.8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. I just think about going to bed at night and knowing he's got everything under control. Hebrews 1.3 Psalm 34.14, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 119.165, Those who love your law have great peace. And nothing causes them to stumble. Isaiah 26, verse 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That's how I started this morning. Trust the Lord. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. John 16, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Romans 8, 6 For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And then finally, 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace, it means He's the Master of all, the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Lord be with you all. As we've been noting, peace is a gift given as a function of grace. Knowing this, the backdrop of our studies, I mean, we're on part 71 on the deceitfulness of sin. Knowing that peace is a grace gift, the kingdom of darkness has been firing on all cylinders since the fall in the garden in order to pervert grace. Somewhere in the middle of our studies, if you recall, we spent some time discovering how grace and even the definition of grace has been perverted, even in the churches, where it has become something unholy, like, you know, quote, whatever is accommodating to the human flesh. You know, it's gracious. That's what the world says. Oh, he's so gracious. No. He's into entitlement. He's crippling people. Oh, my so-and-so is so good. Some people have parents like this. My parents are so gracious. No, they basically spoiled you, and now you're an entitled little brat. That's not grace. That's perversion. And we take that definition, you know, with our preconceptions when we open our Bibles, and we say, see, grace is right here. God's grace. God's going to accommodate my whims like my defunct, dysfunctional parents will and have. No, no, no. We have to learn from the Bible what grace really looks like. And we start right there on the cross. Peace is a grace gift. Knowing this, the kingdom of darkness has been firing on all cylinders since the fall to pervert grace. You get that definition wrong, Everything blows up, including the gospel. All of a sudden, there's no call to repentance anymore. Because, you know, God's just so gracious and loving. There's no turning away from sin. You can keep both. You can stay living like hell with no change whatsoever, no expected change whatsoever. Now we have an impotent God. And you have a free ticket to heaven. (laughs) That's what happens when you pervert God's grace, when it becomes like the world's version of grace, just something that accommodates our whims and the sensibilities of humankind. God is grace. God is love. God's sovereignty functions intrinsically with both of these aspects of Himself. Hence, our anchor principle as we prepare to close out this series titled The Deceitfulness of Sin, we keep coming back to this very, very simple principle. It's just a simple definition for sin. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will. Any deception that diverts our eyes, that gets us away from God's will, that is sin. 
Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. You know, doing something you're not supposed to do or not doing something you're supposed to do. God has a will for your life. When you don't, when you find yourself outside of that will, that is what we call sin. God's will is as we noted earlier. What is his will, by the way? 1 Timothy 2.4 God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants you to know him. Why? Because that's the wellspring for everything else. How do you get to know him? Right here. He is the word, after all. Conversely, we see Satan's will. Go to 2 Timothy 3.6. 2 Timothy 3.6. I'm going sort of quickly now because these are all points of review. We are on our way out of the mine shaft. We're not going to make it today. I thought we were going to make it today, but that's just silly talk at this point. (laughs) But we're not in any hurry, so that's good. So God's will is that all men are saved and then come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay. But then we see Satan's will here. And, and focus on the idea that God wants us to have knowledge of the truth. Knowledge is in view. Knowledge of the Word, specifically. Knowledge of the doctrines of God, if you would. 2 Timothy 3.6 For among them, false teachers, teachers who teach the doctrines of demons, the things that oppose God's will, things that lead us away from God's will for us. For among them, these false teachers, doctrines of demons, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, doesn't mean you can't learn, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's like, a, it's like watching a, a, a hamster on a wheel just run itself ragged and then exhausted and fall out of the wheel and be like, well, there goes another day, I didn't learn anything. It's a treadmill. And that's what false doctrines are meant to do. Put you on a treadmill so that you, at the end of the day, are miserable and exhausted. And then the baseline command, what did Jesus say? This is my command, that you love one another. I'm too tired. I'm too tired. I'm t- I've been so busy trying to come to the knowledge on this false idea of grace and faith and everything we've talked about over the course of this series. I'm too tired and exhausted and therefore I'm miserable and depressed. I can't even fulfill the one command that I know Jesus Christ wants me to fulfill and that is to love other people, to lay down my life for others, particularly my friends, friends of the faith. I can't even do that because I've run myself ragged. How does that happen? And I guess we'll close with the same question we started with this morning. How did I end up here? How did I end up miserable? What's God's God's will? That you're saved and come to the what? The knowledge of the truth. This is the truth. You have to read it. Romans, uh, what, 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. This is the word of Christ. 
You want more faith? You want more joy? You want more peace? You want more love? You want to abide in that sphere, that incredible sphere that's available only to believers? Then obey. I'm not here as a broken record. I may be a bus driver, but I have something to say. Gives me a nice big megaphone. You ever go on a little cruise or something? On your left is the... Nobody? I'm trying to loosen you up. You look kind of tense. I got something to say. It's not me. It's this vessel. It's this office. It's another grace gift in your life. Why? Because we know God's will. And then there's the antithesis of it right there. False doctrines, false teachers, they take you away from God's will, exhaust you to the point of misery and depression. And now you've got no more energy to live for others. You miss out on the blessing of giving of yourself because you've given yourself to exhaustion to something unholy. And you're just flat out wasted. The beauty about this message from God is that there's always tomorrow. I press on to the upward call. You might, I might have just described your morning. <laughs> or yesterday, or this weekend. Could you tip a few back, huh? Nobody thought that was funny? Nobody, Nobody does that anymore? I may have described your life this last year. So, you know what you can't change? Yesterday. Right now. We live right now. Obey right now. If you've been defunct on reading your Bible, then start reading it. If you've missed, missed messages, then go back and, read and listen to them. If you don't read the blogs, go back and read the blogs. They're all there recorded for you by the grace of God. You do not want to be this person in verse 7. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of of truth. I'll end this way, I guess, up here on the board. The only way that folks like you and I can, quote, never come to the knowledge of truth is if we believe lies. The greatest lies of all are regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way we can ever be robbed of the blessings of peace and joy if we stop believing lies. If our eyes are diverted from Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for giving us this time, this solemn time to study your word. Thank you for guiding us in love. We know that you love us, Father, with a love that we can't even describe. Father, thank you for reminding us of your presence in our lives. And thank you for the gifts of being able to live for others. We know there's blessing in it, Father. Thank you for reminding us of this too. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.